Welcome to the Panza Panza Forum. In the Yoruba language, the word panza is usually injected into poetry to express an uncomfortable, uncensored and inconvenient truth. The Panza Panza Forum is candid conversations about the life of African immigrants in America as it relates to their adaptation to their new home. While some may find it easy to integrate and can balance between retaining the original African culture while accepting the culture of their new home, many continue to struggle to find a balance between both worlds. Hello and welcome to Panza Panza Live. This is a podcast where we discuss the lives of African immigrants and their assimilation into Western society as they raise younger generations in a country that is quite different from their own. We also explore the experiences of children of immigrants as they balance the African and Western cultures. We present to you this informative, interesting, and expansive dialogue about the intricate experiences of African immigrants in America. Okay, welcome to Pansa Pans. I'm your host, Kemi Seriki. Today, I'm very privileged to have conversation with Titilayo Ogumbambi. He's a gender-based violence and harmful practice expert. She's an author and the founder of Bondless Hand Initiative, a nonprofit championing violence prevention against women and girls issue in a marginalized community. So welcome to Pansa Pansa, and thank you for coming to have conversation with me about your experience as an immigrant, the selfless work that you are doing globally to bring awareness to gender violence and to discuss your first book as well, uh, uh, which was published, you know, tied to Emerge, dedicated to raising awareness to sexual and gender violence and to talk about your other future pro projects and works. So as I always tell my guests, um, can you fully introduce yourself? Talk a little bit about your background, about your, to our audience about where you were born, where you spent most of your childhood and adult life. Thank you so much, um, Ms. Seriki. It's good to be here. And um, just a little bit about my background. I'm a Yoruba born in the Northern part of Nigeria. <laughs> yeah, so I was born in Jos and I lived my life in Jos until after my first degree at the University of Jos. Wow. Yeah, so that's um, giving you a little bit of why I'm interested in the kind of work I'm doing. So I um, I was born in Jaws. My both parents are, my dad is from Undo, my mom is from Kogi State, but for some reason they met in Jaws and they got married and they started having kids. Um, the fifth out of six children, I have four brothers and one sister. Um, three of them are back home in Nigeria and three of us relocated here, obviously, oh, wow. <laughs> for um, obvious reasons. And then um, basically growing up in Josh was an interesting, you know, um, kind of thing for me because I grew, grew up in an environment where gender-based violence and, you know, inequalities against women were visible. So at a very young age, I began to ask questions. Um, the chapter one of my book is a story of a friend of mine that we went to primary school together. We had dreams and hope. I wanted to be a lawyer. She wanted to be a doctor. And I went to um, Air Force Girls Military School. I don't know if you remember for my um, GS1 
And coming back for holiday, I ran to my best friend's house to look for her. Where's Amina? I need to see Amina. I wanted to give her the stories and the experiences of school. And everybody was mute. Nobody could say anything. And then I kept questioning. And Amina's brother told me she was married off. I was 11. Amina was 12. So these are things that happened to me personally. I grew up in a place where my parents were educated, maybe because they were from the southern part of Nigeria, but I was living in an environment that had questions to ask. And that was what, you know, grew my, um, in, um, you know, passion for the kind of work I'm doing today. I went on to university. I started to advocate. I started taking leadership, you know, position at university, and that guided my career you know, to what I'm doing up to today. Oh. So basically, like, you know, I founded Boundless Hands Africa initiative after my university, you know, to give survivors of sexual abuse mm -hmm. support. Mm -hmm. And in as much as I started this as an advocacy, just less sensitize people, less sensitize women, these are your rights. You can, you, you can have dreams, hope, you're entitled to be educated, you're entitled you know to have the same roles that the boys and the men our communities are having and um when we started going to the community for advocacy programs and all that we had people coming to meet us to say oh my daughter was raped yesterday oh my my mother was beaten yesterday so we had to look for how to start providing services through partnership mm -hmm. so since 2016 through boundless hands africa i've been able to empower over 360 women in nigeria in different communities especially in the southwest because i moved to the southwest for my nyc and then what I'm doing right now is how can we prevent it from the root causes? Mm -hmm. Like we know gender-based violence is imbibed in our cultural norms, beliefs, and gender roles in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. So right now as a PhD student here in the United States, okay, I know I'm talking a lot, but you know, it's after working for about 10 years in Nigeria, I decided that, oh, I think the problem we're having is data. How can we have enough data to be able to enforce these policies? I worked in advocacy. And when you go with your policies, they're saying, where did you get this from? Mm -hmm. And I decided that, okay, I think I need to study public policy to be able to understand how I can use my data to influence, you know, more policies for women. And I applied to the University of Chicago here for my master's. I, I got a full scholarship <laughs> to come to do my <laughs> public policy uh, master's degree. And after the degree, I felt, oh, it's now time to, you know, go back home and do some work. Well, I... I've, I, you know, interned with the United Nations. I worked with Pathfinder and I was thinking, okay, I'm coming back home to be able to achieve some certain roles, maybe as a country director, as a senior person, because I understand the problems. Mm -hmm. So if international organizations really want to tackle the problem, I have the experience, I have the skills. Mm -hmm. But a lot of roles I was applying for wanted somebody that had a PhD, you know, and somebody that had you know, a PhD. And I said, oh, it's a PhD, right? Mm -hmm. I'm currently rounding on my first year PhD in psychology because after studying data, I realized it's not even the data that is the issue. Mm -hmm. The data we have, what interventions have we done? How have we solved the yeah. issue? Yeah. So I've been able to give, you know, the story and the background where I'm, I'm at now. I'm currently also consulting for the World Bank. They have a project they are doing on gender in Nigeria. We're just doing like a text review on um, how entrepreneurship, like internet and all that are causing more harm than good to our yes. community. 
Yes, and that's, that's very powerful, this account that you just gave. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that you're able to come to this country to do your PhD because that is actually going to much more expose you to so many things mm -hmm. that, you know, so much opportunity in terms of helping you with your career and move you further than your, you know, your wildest dream, I will tell you, because this is the place where the resources are. I right. wish in Africa that we have so much resources. And I know you go, growing up in a diversified environment back home in Jos, where they're mostly Northerners, Awusas, and you know, all these other people coming from the South. And I want to know that, you know, I think that will really help you a lot in this country. Yeah. I, actually, I actually speak Hausa more than Yoruba because wow, that, that's <laughs> interesting. That is interesting. So I know that many immigrants left their country uh, to migrate to another country for a better life. And as a student to, uh, for education, some of us migrate through, through civil war or conflict and escape hunger or poverty to find economic opportunity and all that stuff. What would you say, um, um, apart from what we talked about in terms of opportunity, what other things do you, would you say your reason for migrating to the United States? Okay, um, I mentioned that I have two of my siblings here. Yeah. Okay. And also because I got to a point in my career where I think I wanted more education, especially global education, to take me to where I wanted to get to in my career. Mm -hmm. So the most motivating part for me was because I wanted education mm -hmm. and also because of cultural reasons. I had my elder sister here, we're only together. She left like when we were young. I think I was still in um, secondary school when she left and I really wanted to just be with my sister. Unfortunately, now she's in Georgia, I'm here in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there are um, obvious reasons why people relocate. I just want to um, expose you to a term called social political homelessness. Mm. So social political homelessness refers to a state of being without a stable or secure social or political environment where individuals or groups experience lack of belonging, inclusion or representation within a society. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are motivated to move out of their um, countries to different places for different reasons. In Nigeria, we have unstable, you know, places like the um, Northeast where people are fleeing away from conflicts. Mm -hmm. So some people there are fleeing away from their countries to a new country like America, just because of the instability and the um, security reasons. Mm -hmm. And then some people, economic, you know, aspirations, many black people want better opportunities Obviously, America and the UK and the Western world have, you know, more opportunities for us in education and, um, you know, in other things. Mm -hmm. I, I've mentioned all that, but I'm just saying social, political homelessness, you experience it when you move to a new place. People don't understand your language. When I got here, I hear people say, hello, I can't hear you. Mm -hmm. And it was awkward to me because I'm speaking English for Christ's sake. <laughs> So why do you say you can't hear me? And those are the things that, you know, make people feel homeless in a social way. Mm -hmm. So yes, we have a house be, um, on our roof, but we are feeling homeless because we're not integrating. Mm -hmm. Then I have people that have had issues with accommodation. You know, somebody doesn't want to rent accommodation because they feel you're from somewhere they don't know. And they are 
obvious reasons that homelessness happens. But like I said, I was fortunate because I had family here and I could, you know, settle in easily. And I also had financial support because I came to school on scholarship. That, that's so great. That is so great because, like you said, that term that you use, you know, being homeless, even though you have a home, but there's so many barriers that you face as an immigrant in this country. I, I mean, many people that may tell you they didn't hear what you're saying because they just, some of them are just prejudiced just to sh sh shoot someone down and say, you know what, you know, we're just going to use that against you. You speak perfectly well English, you know, so it's so sad. Imagine those who came from French colonized speaking countries in Africa mm -hmm. or who don't even speak French at all. Exactly. The kind of services, the kind of, you know, um, challenges that they face in this country yeah. is it, it, unbelievable. Yeah. So what would you say that you, what is your view about uh, brain drain? from Africa to America and all these European countries? <laughs> that's, that's a very sensitive topic. But for me, Nigeria is huge. Like we have over 200 million people. And the reason why people like me or other people that I know, especially young people our age are moving is because we feel we just need better opportunities. Mm -hmm. So if they classify that as brain drain, it means we have to fix our economy to make people stay back. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. Um, my husband is into IT, he's into cybersecurity. I'm into, you know, I was a public um, servant and also worked in policy. I did procurement work. So we were actually living an average life in Nigeria. He was a banker. I was working in private sector. But to an extent, we couldn't plan. We have two kids. I have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. We could, we could afford to send them to school. We could afford our house. We could afford a decent car and all that. But I was working in communities where people could not eat. I was working in communities where COVID struck and young girls were practically being used as sex so that they can eat. So growing in those kind of communities just motivates you to wanna go to do more so that you can come back to your community to develop it, to address those root causes so that girls will be able to aspire like me, so that boys will be able to, you know, have a, think about their future and grow. So the major thing about Nigeria is poverty, leadership, if we can address those two things, give the right leaders opportunity to find a solution to our problems and tackle poverty, then brains with some <laughs> will stop being drained. Yeah, and, and that's true. And the safety is also important. The healthcare is also important. But someone like me who has been here for over 40 years, many people when I came to this country, I tell people dollar, one dollar was equal to 50 kobo. Wow. When did you come? <laughs> 80, 82. Oh, was I was even born. <laughs> uh -huh, was equal to 50 kobo. If you take Nigerian passport anywhere, that is your ID. You get the respect right there from everybody, from the bank. Everybody wants to deal, you know, do business with Nigerians because, you know, we have oil then everything was booming. And then at that time, people were not even wanting to stay. 
they want to just go to school and go back home, back home yeah. you know, to, uh, you know, implement their ex expertise, whatever they learn in school, you know, to bring it back home and to enrich the country and, you know, help other people. But when you are thinking about what is going on, the lack of health care, mm -hmm. lack of safety, yeah. the poor road that causes accident, the life, you know, the lifespan of people, where the people are in electricity. electricity. I, when I tell my children that I read with Tando, they laugh at me. Yeah. <laughs> I we were like the average, you know, my dad was working, he was educated, and I still started with Tando. And I still, this is, I'm 38 years old, and we still have people studying with Tando. At this time, at this stage, so it's yeah. it's just it's just part of it. But yeah. you know, highlighting on health care, I think healthcare is a general issue around the world. There are some things that even if I want to do, I'll probably go back to Nigeria to do when it's healthcare. We have some standards mm -hmm. in Nigeria, and we have some availability, but it's expensive for some people. Yeah, yeah because when I came to America too, I want to get a dental appointment. Mm -hmm. And I'm waiting for months to be able to get a dental appointment. <laughs> you know, so I think healthcare is a general issue globally. But like you said, if we can enhance leadership, corruption, and some basic issues in our communities, yeah. then yeah. I, I believe that yeah. brain dream will stop, will stop happening. That, that's what it is. So you had your BS degree from Nigeria, University of Jaws. Yeah. And you briefly talk about, you know, can you briefly talk about the similarity or differences in educational system, both in Nigeria and U.S.? How did you navigate through educational system in U.S. as an immigrant and a foreign student? You know, did you uh, experience some form of challenges in social or academic adjustment? So I think I'm not a very good um, person to be able to answer this question because mm -hmm. before I came here for my master's, I've traveled mm -hmm. globally. Okay. Like I've gone to the UN for conferences. I've gone to the UK. I've gone around Africa. So mm -hmm. I knew how to, you know, listen and hear when people are talking. I've attended conferences both virtually and bored. One of the things I realized that when I came here, even with, I didn't go to one of the top schools in Nigeria. I went to University of Joss. My program in University of Chicago was a combination of 28 world leaders, wow. like young leaders from their countries. And I came there and I was excelling. Mm. So the truth is that Nigerian education is actually a solid one. Mm. I moved my kids here last year and they are high honor roles. They're doing absolutely, awesomely well in, in, the, in their classes here. So when it comes to education, I think Nigeria, the only thing we don't have is maybe the infrastructure in education and all that. But I think we're trying compared to, you know, I think another thing that helps us is because we're an English speaking country, we speak English. So when we come, the only little bit of thing that I mentioned is accent. And there was a day I had to tell my professor when he was saying, oh, I can't hear you. I can't hear. I'm like, you have an accent to me too. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. So the way, you know, Indians talk and they have an accent. We talk to them, we have an accent. You too, as an American, you have an accent right. to me. That's right. That's right. That's exactly. But so far, I'm speaking English. I'm That's not going to right. change my accent for anybody. Yeah. And I love it that you've been here since the 80s. And you're still speaking like me. That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I want to be able to relate to someone like you. 
Because I've heard even some of our young people coming maybe 10 years ago, they, you know, when you hear them talking, they try to change their accent to Americanize it and all that stuff, you know, because, and it has to do with uh, insecurity also. Insecurity and inferiority. Uh -huh. You want to fit in by own. So there's so many people who came from different parts of Europe that they were brought here at a very young age. And you will see them, they still have that accent. Even Mexicans. Yeah, from Russia. I love Mexicans for that. Even yeah. if were, I have Mexicans yeah. in my school, and I'm like, yeah. are you born here? Be like, yes, they have that accent. accent. People from Russia, you will hear them with a thick accent. So it's only a lot of time, many of us just want to kind of like blend it. We don't want to differentiate ourselves. You know, from and that's my identity, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> I've said it on this podcast many times. You know, I'm so proud of it. You could say I didn't pronounce it right, I will write it down for you. Exactly. If you're saying that I, I will speak a little bit slower. No, so I will write it down because sometimes people want to, you know, put you down that I can't hear what you say. I said, Do you want me to write it down? <laughs> read it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so that's what it is. So you presently pursuing your uh, PhD candidate, uh, you know, uh, at um, National Lewis University, where your research work focuses on uh, intersection of gender, uh, violence prevention, and policy and advocacy. You earned your master's, like you said, in United States. How has you obtaining your education in U.S. empower or enhance your activism in gender-based violence globally? How has that helped you? Miss um, Eke, I want to just be plain with you. When they see your CV, they want to learn more just because you schooled here. Yes. So it has opened a lot of doors for me, collaboration opportunities, because you know I attend conferences, I, I mix up with people, I talk about my work and people want to hear more, people want to know more. And then another thing is implementations and structure. Mm -hmm. I, I think that here, the nonprofit I've been involved with within the short period I've been around, they have structure, they have this theory of change, they have their plans and all that which is something that I feel I'm going to, you know, take back home to Nigeria. Even though I started, I started my nonprofit based on passion. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I was able to infuse the structure into it, you know, data, calculating. But that's something I think we don't really do well back home. Mm -hmm. We need the numbers. How many people have you attended to? How many people have passed through you and have been able to achieve this, you know? So detailing evaluation, how can we evaluate this work and do it better next time? Those are the things I've learned here that I know it will impact my work greatly. And then collaboration. In Nigeria, I think we have, we have a competitive field, which is good. Like, I think it's, it's killing us. Yeah, this is a competition I have that is making me strive for more. But we need to know how to use that competitive spirit in a positive way. Mm -hmm. So. We have a million and one nonprofits in the same community doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. What about synergizing together and having a louder voice? That's what I tell people wherever I have the opportunities to speak. And since coming here, I've been able to collaborate. I'm not back home, but my nonprofit is working because I'm collaborating with people. Oh, we're doing a measure health and hygiene project. What are you doing? Oh, I think we should do it together and have a greater voice. The last um, International Women's Day, it was a match. 
I collaborated with about five people at the United um, Nations um, Consular in Lagos to teach um, girls and young business owners digital skills, like minimal digital skills. Mm-hmm. And it was bigger because I came together. I'm not there. So imagine if I wanted to do it on my own, how would I have gotten people to attend? Yes. So like I said, strategy, evaluation, collaboration. We're stronger together. Yes, and I'm so glad that you mentioned collaboration. And even many of us who have been here for years, one thing I see with a lot of us Nigerians, even African in general, we tend to compete a lot. And if you start something, instead of people working together in one hands with you and see how we could progress and move these things up, they will start their own on another side. Mm-hmm. And then it creates, you know, a lot of other problems. But you, look at you now, you have the passion for what you're doing. It's your passion. It's not something that you saw somebody else and said, oh, that's what I want to do. But that your passion drove you to where you are today. Yeah. If we can just have that in the back of our mind, that we are all here to help every member of our community there will not be any form of competition, but also to collaborate and say, okay, you're already doing that. I'm gonna go on this other angle Mm -hmm. to do another thing. Or you can work together. And you can also work together. That's it. You know, I didn't wanna go into how I started this podcast because being that I have two children in this country, I wanted to talk about intergenerational relationship between African immigrant parents and their children. Wow. And I started in my community first to pull people together, but it's so difficult to get up oh, yeah. together, you know. So when I couldn't get anybody together too much within the community, then I, I took it to podcast. I said, let me start something completely, yeah. you know. So it's really something that we need to uh, uh, start thinking about. So you're presently juggling many roles, a <laughs> wife, a mother, a PhD student. How are you able to navigate through all these roles? Okay. It's <laughs> quite different from Nigeria because I know limited support from exactly. extended family. Your family is in another state. You're trying to balance mother who raising children in a country with multiple culture that may overpower. Mm. our own traditional value how are you able to do it so um i i would like to go back to when i started my career so Mm -hmm. apart from advocacy and policy work i've always been a career person so i started my career in um procurement in public sector oil and gas and then i moved to telecoms and one thing i realized when i stepped into procurement is a male dominated field Mm -hmm. the aspect of procurement i was working because i was working with an engineering firm and the questions will be like, when you're sitting on the table for meetings with your male counterparts, maybe they are running late. They will be like, oh, this is a lady. She has to go home and take care of her kids. And I'll be like, no, I'm here. I didn't complain to you. I didn't give you an excuse. Or when they are going to cite, they want to sideline you because you're a female. At that time, I realized because I'm a lady, I have to work extra, 10 times extra than my male counterparts. Mm-hmm. Just because of the stereotype and our patriarchal you know, structure mm-hmm. of our community and society in Nigeria. So it's, I think it's been built in me. And then I saw my parents as I was growing up, family is a very big influence on, on you when you're growing up. 
I knew we were six. It was a little bit difficult for my mom, but I know she used to teach. I remember vividly that she really wanted to be a nurse, but my dad, I think they came to a conclusion that, oh, you have six kids, who will take care of your children? You know, when, but I think she insisted that she really wanted to do something and she was a teacher. So that also was a, you know, a, a foundation for me to say, oh, my parents, my mom used to go to work. Obviously I wanted to work too. And like I said, getting into the industry was tough because mm. I had to work extra hard to prove myself because I'm a woman. And I know a lot of other women you know, face these issues too. Mm. So to answer your question, I believe I built myself. It's, it's the most difficult thing mm. any woman can ever do because you're juggling family, you're juggling, you know, care, household and everything. Another thing is the orientation. My husband is somebody that believes there's no um, role that is for woman or there's no role that is for a man. When I came for my master's, I actually left my two kids in Nigeria because it was the peak of COVID. I came in 2020. My daughter was three years old. And the stereotypes, everybody around was like, you are leaving your three-year-old daughter to go to school. I'm like, who gets a master's for $75,000 free? I say children. I know other people would have taken a different decision at that time. But my decision was, having the conversation with my family and getting them to support. Mm -hmm. Another thing I find difficult here is um, what we do in Nigeria is that you have maids, you have house help, you have family, I have my mom, I have my dad and all that. You have that support, but here you don't have the support. Yeah. So one of the things I talked about was it was going to be almost impossible for me to come to do my master's with these kids on my own. And my husband was not ready to leave his job. You know, immigration in America is complicated. It's not like he can come and work here while I'm going to school. So we took that decision. Coming to school here was the process for me. Like we started thinking about it years before. We started saving towards it because we knew it was an expensive. And when it came, we took that decision. It's huge. I did master's, I went back to Nigeria, I launched my book because I finished the book while I was in my master's, and then I was able to bring the whole family here. Wow. It was a difficult adjustment because I could sublet cleaning <laughs> of the house, cooking the food, and now I'm here, I have to cook. In fact, before I, was, I came to join this meeting, I had a meeting, while I was in that meeting, I was cooking. Because I have a training all through tomorrow. I won't be at mm -hmm. home. I need to get all those things ready. Mm -hmm. And then I come back. After I come back in the evening, <laughs> I still have to study. I still have to write. I still. But I feel it's all determination. What is it that you really want to get alive? I, I feel this is the time I'm young. I need to get this behind me. And, and it's the self-discipline that you grew up with. Uh -huh, from yes. the home where you came from because mm -hmm. if you didn't have that it would be difficult for you to even navigate through mm -hmm. you know because well, like I always say in case of people listening as a woman no matter where you are even here in the U.S. I've worked in several you know spaces you just have to put in an extra mm -hmm. just because you're a woman mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so whoever is listening just put in that extra and you, oh, you will never regret that extra yeah, that's true so what would you say surprised you mostly about America? Um, the truth is that I don't know because I've been coming to the U.S. Okay. for over time. So I came in 
in 2017, I actually had my daughter here because my sister was here, my mom was here. I went back. Um, what's, what is the most surprising thing? I think what shocked me most is the lack of community. So I grew up with the fact that whether I know you or I don't know you, they're my neighbor. I go, go knock your door. <laughs> when we were growing up, like, ah, I see one girl that I want to play with. And we go and, mm-hmm. you know, we had the community living. You are walking on your street and say, ah, I'm on Lagba Jaconie, or whose daughter is that? You, yeah. We had a community. But coming here, I came COVID. I almost got depressed because I was going to school online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only saving grace was because I had a roommate. And that was one of the things we discussed. Like, oh, you're coming to a new town. You're not going to leave alone. And she was Nigerian and she was in my class. So imagine if I had come and did not know anybody. And I was in COVID. I was locked down. The cold of Chicago was mm-hmm. terrible. At that time, it was December. Everything was just wrong. I just missed community. That's the yeah, truth. Yeah. Like I miss seeing people. I miss having conversation. I miss just having a walk on the street and meet one woman and just or go buy something and you're just having a chat. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe that community is, is what you miss. Yeah, and it's so true for so many, even many of us who have been here for years also. But uh, as time goes on, you build your own yeah, community. True. One thing I try to advise people is not only uh, you don't have to build your community among your own also. You find people from different race, different oh, yeah. backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And that we could actually lend a hand. They could learn mm-hmm. from you. You could learn from them. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's very important. So what would you say you appreciate mostly about America? Everything works. <laughs> expensive. <laughs> so you know when you call and you're trying to say, oh, I quickly need to charge my phone before Nepa goes. <laughs> or, ah, I need to, you know, there's just some subconscious um things that happen especially electricity because mm-hmm. we don't have enough electricity in nigeria yeah and, um i just feel everything works another thing is that i had to adjust even though i was used to scheduling my time i need to do in chicago you're taking the train you're taking the bus you mm-hmm. have to look at the time mm-hmm. so one thing i learned how to do was organize myself better mm-hmm. the bus is coming at this time the train is coming at this time i need to get yeah. In Nigeria, we don't do that. You just come <laughs> out of your house and <laughs> move. So there was one incident that happened with my colleague. She's in my class now. She needed furniture and you know how you Facebook market, furniture and all that. And it was far away from town. So she took a train there and she was assuming that by the time she get the furniture, she would just come outside and wave that with taxi. <laughs> She said she waited and waited and she wanted to like go on Uber. But you know, Uber, nobody will come and use their car. To yeah. Have to rent a truck. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> so, right. uh, those are the little, you know, things that we found out when we came here. But you know, we are just in Yeah, yeah that's true. So now let's focus on uh, gender-based uh, violence. So Titila, you have 10 years of experience designing, implementing program, focusing on economic empowerment, sexual reproductive health, right? Social justice in local, national, and international capacity, and management experience across multiple social policies and health uh, market services. Your work has been recognized in, with multiple award winning in uh, 
Girls Child Advocate in 2022, Women, um, UN Women Chicago, USA. So you're doing something there as well? So it was a global award. award. I was actually okay. in Nigeria when I applied for that award. Yeah. Okay, one champion 2019, YALI Fellows 2016, UN uh, Women Beijing. All this accolade that you, you know, gather together and that led you to your book that you wrote, which I have been reading. What sparks, I, I actually, you know, you mentioned a little bit about what sparked your interest in gender violence, but what actually developed it to go globally on internationally, apart from in Nigeria? Okay, um, thank you very much. So one of the things that changed after my university, I moved to Lagos, I was staying with um, a relative and my relative was also experiencing gender-based violence mm. in her home. And one of the ways I got involved was trying to get organizations that would help her through that because I was already aware of these situations. And I stumbled on Dr. Jo Odumakin. I don't know if you know her. She's a renowned um, advocate of gender abuse in Nigeria. And while you know supporting my auntie, I decided to start volunteering with her. Yeah, and that was where I learned how to be a counselor in this space. Mm. Listening to, you know, women that come and giving them help and all the process. Mm. And I, I was with Dr. Joe for over a year. And I, I was now, I applied for this yearly training. And I was selected as one of the first hundred um, um, people in Nigeria. And before then, I was also involved in ISEC. We had done a lot of advocacy work. And so by the time I got into um, Yali, I realized that I need a structure to do what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I approached a couple of, you know, my colleagues that we met there. And coming after six weeks, what we wanted to do was to hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. So me and those colleagues were the ones that registered Boundless Hands Africa and started to do advocacy work. So like I said, recognizing international has always been, I'm a structured person. And when you're doing the work, people want to know you. Mm. I registered in Lagos State government. I've been going to communities. And when organizations come, especially international organizations, they want to know who is this person? Who is doing this? And that was how I was identified by UN Women Nigeria through the work I was doing. Because there was structure. It was out there. Mm -hmm. I had, I was not just making it up. Like I had the numbers, I had the work, and I had the people that were working for me. And we had a theory of change. What we want to do is advocacy. When we started to do advocacy, we realized that people needed, people needed um, service provision. Mm -hmm. And with service provision, we started talking to Mirabel Center. We started talking to community hospitals that people could go to, making sure they are getting the help they need. Mm -hmm. So... One thing I believe is the work that you do will speak for you. You don't have to speak for yourself. And that was how I grew into when I started working with UN Women, they wanted me on a certain project. And then, you know, there and that, and I, I just kept expanding what I was doing, making sure I'm coming back to evaluate, making sure I'm, I'm, I'm finding out what the needs of these women are and also partnering with different organizations. One of the streams we have is empowerment. So when 
you know, people that have been uh, passing through gender-based violence come to us, you know, they go through the process, they stay in Mirabel Center for some time. We realize that for them to stand on their feet, they need empowerment. We partner with people that they can learn skills. There are some of them that even want to go to school and we follow them through that process to get back so that they can integrate into the society and take care of their kids because that's where the problem is always. So, so you combine uh, your work with Maribel Center, which I know I, I came across the organization about a year ago on Instagram. Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, I know they've been recognized by the uh, now King of England. Yes. Uh -huh. Maribel Center is, is a center where women that are going through gender-based violence can go and, you know, stay. Because the problem is that when you're in a situation, you need to first leave that situation mm -hmm. before you find out what. So Mirabel Center houses them. We don't have that capacity. Mm -hmm. So what we do is that when we get that first time call, oh, I need a safe space, I need this, we are partners with Mirabel Center and we send them there. So while they are Mirabel Center, they need you know economic empowerment and all that, we make sure they are involved in those mm -hmm. um, projects we have. Wow, that's, that's really powerful. So when I'm having discussion on certain subjects, I like to examine the historical aspect of such issue. For example, in Nigeria, one of one may look at uh, the role of women before religious influences, whether you're talking about Christianity and Islam. In the case of uh, adoption into Christianity and Islam in many African countries, I was uh, I would be curious to know the role of women before coming in contact with Christianity and Islam, how has the religion changed or obstructed the role of women? I'm also curious to know how colonization and European educational system have uh, that we have adopted to impacted the role of women during the early stage of our involvement with the uh, uh, British. So for example, the British imposed a form of dominant, most, uh, you know, kind of male, you know, into when they move women from political, social, like economic space, mm -hmm. they used to where they used to occupy before our contact with the European uh, uh, Lord, whatever they want to call themselves. So European education and this later reinforced the male control society we presently find ourselves. You understand what I'm saying? So we then later women are now, it was later that they allow women to come into school, according to this book from uh, Marjorie uh, Kenston McIntosh, the author of Yoruba Women Works and Social State Change. Women are then taught, you know, during the colonial time, they taught women home economics. Yeah. Uh -huh, which is all about cooking and other aspects of household management. That was the only kind of education that they designed. And how to bear children. Uh -huh. And <laughs> how to raise children. Those are the only thing that they, you know, they have for women, whereby many of these men who also went to school became clerical staff for them. They were not even holding on to high role anyway. Uh -huh. So gender role and household management were, you know, genderized. Mm -hmm. you know, it's structurally, you know, socially constructed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, would you mind if you can shed a little bit of light as per how you've come across so many of all these issues during yeah. your 
research or even back home that you could differentiate between is this culture or is this religion? Yeah. Is this a role before we came in contact with the European or is something that we adapted to? Because sometimes Africans can't even tell what is culture, what is religion? Exactly. What came from culture, what actually came from religion? We tend to mix everything together. Yeah. Um, so one of the things we do is if you want to address things from the grassroots, mm -hmm. you need to understand the historical Mm -hmm. that constructed that situation. So as a gender activist, one of the things I like to do is to learn about history. Mm -hmm. And one thing I know is that Nigeria had structures. We had representation of traditional rulers, the kings, the queens, the emirates, and all that before colonization. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they used to disrupt our structures was religion. And that is what is still haunting us today. Because before their religion came, we had what we were practicing. Mm -hmm. We had Ifa. Mm -hmm. I have a professor that is studying Ifa right now, and Ifa is mathematical. Mm -hmm. So we had those things, but I, I, I totally, what I, the conclusion I get is that for them to be able to disrupt those, our structures that we had, they needed something and religion was what they used. Because I tell people that, okay, Jesus is the savior. I'm a Christian, yes. But I'm just saying, if these people did not come to introduce Jesus as the savior to us, we also had our gods. We had Shango. We had all those, mm -hmm. all those other gods that had powers. And everything in life is about your belief. So the way you believe in Jesus and is working for you, we also still have people that are practicing this religion. Yeah. And like you mentioned, one of the things religion did, because it's there, you must submit to your Lord, you must submit to your servant, that was what they used to construct gender roles. Mm -hmm. And that is what's still affecting us today. And patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Patriarchy is masculinity. You put the men, you know, on the pedestrian, and women are supposed to bow down to them. Mm -hmm. And that was affecting a lot of situations right now. Because while I was growing, the boys were more encouraged to leadership positions the spots they did was more masculine and we were subjected to do less, you know, masculine stuff. But, you know, with the progress that is going on now, I believe that we can, you know, overcome this situation. But the truth is that religion was used to obstruct our structures. The truth is that we had the structures, we had leadership roles where women were manning, women were fighters. I don't know if you watch this um, new movie, The Woman King. Yeah. It took us back to history. We had women fighting. Mm -hmm. We had all those roles and religion came, colonialism came, everything crashed down. Mm -hmm. And right now, for us to trace it back, we need to obstruct the structures. Mm -hmm. And that's why my research focus is targeting traditional roles. Because for some reason, you say you don't know if you can, you know, um, you can um, differentiate between culture and religion. It has been integrated into each other. And that's why we're having the most difficult problems we are having right now. Mm -hmm. And if we look at it as a gender activist, a lot of issues about gender uh, molestation and all that even happen in the churches. Mm -hmm. Two, and then we have cultural norms that enforces gender abuse, like female genital mutilation. Mm -hmm. 
Those are imbibed in culture. Some people still believe that if women are not circumcised in their community, it means it's not a complete woman. Yes, yes. So, and if you even look at the history of female gender mutilation, it was not our culture at all. It came from, I think, Mali or somewhere different from where we are from. In fact, recently I read that then women in Lagos, if you marry a man and you are not interested or he's not interested, you can leave the man and go and marry another person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But right now, religion has said divorce is a sin. Mm -hmm. So women have to keep remaining in abusive homes where they can be get, they can get killed from molestation and, and battery. Mm -hmm. So and like I said, women also contribute to oppression of women. Because Maybe of the cultural, cultural uh, uh, So uh, our parents uh, were brought up to teach us like women and make sure that we are well trained so that we'll be good mothers and and you know bear children that is why you see when you are not bearing children is a problem for your mother because the culture where she comes from puts a significant importance on you having a child whereas both of you need to have a equal stake to be a child yeah. but the man is not blamed if there's no child in the family yeah Exactly. And they don't even think a man has problem in exactly. Um, yeah, so that's the area of my sexual and reproductive health rights, yeah. where we try to advocate the women. They understand their menstrual health and hygiene. They understand how to take care of their self, control their circle, and they also understand that by the time they get married, they are not the solely person responsible for having kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I believe. With this um, research that I'm doing right now, understanding how traditional institutions enforce cultural and gender norms that are harmful and cause gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. I believe that with the process that we've been taking with advocates and policies that we just design something from here, the Western world, and take it back home and say, oh, this is it. No, what I'm doing is that I'm going back this traditional. Do you think that you enforcing female genital mutilation is putting girls in danger. Yeah. And then we have to orientate them and say, this culture that you are practicing is not our culture. They too need to know. Yes. And we have to educate. And that education is very, very important. For even for so many of our women abroad also, because we tend to carry that culture along. Oh, yes. From yes. home, and we can tend to implement it. Mm -hmm. So for me, my interest in women's studies started with my curiosity in understanding race and gender in America. Oh, nice. So <laughs> gender and race are socially constructed. Mm -hmm. As a Black immigrant, uh, you are subjected to multiple construct. <laughs> you, yeah, those are your intersectionality. Mm -hmm. You are not only faced with discrimination based on, on you or biases as a woman, you also experience inequal treatment, discrimination and biases because you, the, your country of your origin or your religious background. Somebody might wear, see you wearing a jab, might use that to, uh, you know, to discriminate against you or look down at you and say, oh, well, those are the oppressed women. So my curiosity led me to read more uh, about women history in Africa, mostly focusing on Nigeria, specifically specifically on role of Yoruba women. Mm. Mm -hmm. Very important. So as an African immigrant woman, a mother and a wife, your view of race and gender. What is your view of race and gender 
in America? How you perceive it? Yeah, I feel race and gender is your number one identity as a woman. Mm -hmm. So the, whether you're a male or you're a female, that gender is your number one identity. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously your race, um, God has differentiated us that you are black. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when everybody, anybody is describing you, they will say the black woman. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's that's who you are described. And even the, the white counterparts too, they are described as the white woman. Yeah. Nobody say, nobody would just say white without putting the woman or the man. So gender mm -hmm. is that. Yeah, but I feel there are a lot of stereotypes around that because mm -hmm. they say the black woman, it comes with additional. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah additional yeah. things. And um, I know you asked me about my work. So coming here too, I realized that gender-based violence is a very big issue, especially because I stay in Chicago and I stay in the South side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So I firsthand witness gender-based violence abuse. Mm -hmm. And also they have a lot of homeless issues here. So one of the reasons that some people are homeless is because they are fleeing away from abusive relationship or abusive homes. And so it's a global issue. Yeah. It's a global issue. And identify your gender. One of the things I tell people is that I'm black, I'm woman, but I have some other identities, which yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things we did in my school when we came was that one of my identities, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a sister. Um, you know, apart from profession, I have all that to my identity. So I should not be judged just because I'm black. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm an immigrant woman. Exactly. You know, so all those things. So can you break down the causes of gender violence or gender inequalities? Because I know I read something like that. In yeah, so you know, there are different forms of gender-based violence rape, sexual abuse, which can be sexual harassment. So for sexual abuse, it's not only when you are penetrated mm -hmm. forcefully that makes it sexual. Even if you are touched, you're harassed because we have a lot of young girls that have been touched inappropriately, that's sexual harassment. And we also have physical abuse where you are being battered or beaten. Female genital mutilation, like I, not, I, I said, is cutting off of the clitoris of, of young girls to make them women. Those are forms of gender-based violence. And rape is one of the, I think, the most common where the research or the data we are using says one in four women have experienced one sexual abuse or the other. So it means if you have four girls, one is at the risk of experiencing that is the data we are using globally. Yeah, so um, trafficking is another one with a lot of people moving from place to place. Recently, I was watching a documentary online that says um, young girls are being taken to hotels mm -hmm. and, and abused sexually. Mm -hmm. Because here you, you really can't determine who is young and who is old because everybody is big. Yeah. Most of them are under age, 13, 14 year old girls are being trafficked in hotels. So now one, one of the things they are doing is training um, the staffs in the hotel that whoever you're checking in, you must collect an ID and make sure the ID tallies. Because they go as far as even changing the ID to another person and changing the, the age of the person. So sexual abuse, gender-based violence is in different forms and different shapes. We just have to identify it and we have to identify the root causes of it. Yeah. In the home, 
what happens in Africa mostly is that the people that abuse the, the girls are mostly close people, uncles, auntie, house, house people that help in the house and all that. And that's why the cultural silence is higher in our place because if it's an uncle, nobody wants to embarrass the uncle in the family, so they cover it up and the girl is dying. And some of the health effects of sexual abuse when it comes to child marriage, there's something called, I've forgotten the word, I think VVF is, is an issue because the, the cervix is not developed enough for the girl to have kids. So the implication is that if she forcefully have kids, that place gets damaged and she deals with you know, that for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And health implications like sexual diseases, is, um, what's the name, all those sexual diseases that you can contact. HIV and AIDS is one of them because if somebody that has HIV and AIDS is, is, um, is, is having an uncultural sex or forceful sex with another person, you yeah. can have HIV and AIDS. So there are different things. Emotional abuse. A lot of girls that have been abused at a young age have not gone over it. So they have that trauma within them. They deal with all those self esteem issues because they've been abused at a very young age. And married, marrying young girls of at the age of 11, 12. 12, exactly. Yeah, you know, that's so, a lot of people, when we talk about gender violence, many people confuse it with domestic violence. Okay. So would you be able to define the difference between domestic violence and gender violence? Yeah, sure. So gender violence, we call it gender-based violence, is violence that is meted to you based on your gender. So for gender-based violence, it's not only women. So if men face gender-based violence, so when you exactly, men, children, boys, girls, gender-based violence is any form of violence that is meted to you based on your gender. So it can happen to male or female, boy or girl. That's gender-based violence. Um, what did you call the second one? Domestic violence. So domestic violence is a violence that happened within a domestic conference. Mm -hmm. When you say domestic conference, within the family. Mm -hmm. So most times it's intimate partner violence. Like it happened between husband and wife, between child. Domestic violence can be between father and child, like incest. Hmm. I have cases of incest where a father is sleeping with the daughter. Yeah. <laughs> so that's domestic violence because it happens in the domestic conference. And then even beating. When we came to America, my daughter fell down. We took her to the hospital. They sent us out and we're asking her, did your mother beat you or did your father beat you? That's domestic violence. Hmm. So it's not only between husband and wife. It can happen between um, husband and child or between a, a, an older child and a younger child. So it can be physical, it can be sexual. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And all this uh, education is needed, even within an African immigrant community in America here. Because mm -hmm. like I said, many things is swept under the rug. Yeah, true. And they don't want to talk about it. We have uh, uh, issue with uh, female genital mutilation. We have issue with marrying young girls off at a very young age, and they keep it all short. Yeah, one of the things that's happening, like you said, is that immigration makes people move their culture with them. So here in the United States in 1996, the U.S. government also did a policy against female genital mutilation because, can you hear me? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, sorry. Because female genital mutilation has started being a thing in the United States. People are bringing their culture and their practices and it's happening here. So you, um, the United States government stopped it and created a policy around protecting people on um, female genital mutilation. Mm -hmm. So like you said, cultures, practices are being brought. People are marrying young age. We have Indians that they believe you know, based on their religion that girls are marrying young. So it's happening here. That's why I say gender-based violence is actually a thing in the US. And there are a lot of policies and advocacy that are going around it. That's, that's so true. Now let's talk about your book. You recently authored a published book titled Emerge. The book shed light on the ash reality of sexual and gender-based violence in Nigeria and other part of Africa. Looking at your work experience, I would suggest influence you to write this book. Can you give our audience a brief description of the book? Okay, so um, in 2019, just before COVID, an organization reached out to me. Like I mentioned, once your work is out there, people will know you and organizations will reach out to you. Personal people will reach out to you. And this organization is called Female Library, um, Library of Female Authors. Is a US-based organization founded by a woman. Um, what's her name? I think I've forgotten her name, but she she authored, you see her, her this thing there in the book. So she reached out to me and said, what they are doing globally is they are trying to encourage more women to write. Will I be interested to write a book? I was like, I've never ever thought of writing it before. Where will I start from? And I said, okay, she should give me some time. I'll get back to her. I started conversing with my friends and they were like, Titi, if somebody should write it, you should be the one to write a book because you have experiences in this area. And then I read back to her and I said, I don't have the competence, but what I know is that one thing I always wanted to do was to tell stories of sexual abuse and gender-based violence because I feel a lot of people are not aware Mm -hmm. So for me, it was more like an awareness tool. If people hear this too, especially I was focused on younger girls, mm -hmm. teens, if a teen is reading my book and read a chapter of emotional abuse, she knows that when her boyfriend is shouting on her, that is emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. So I started to put together stories. And guess what? The stories, the good thing is that because I said my organization is structured, we had the data. Everybody that came to us with their, with their issue, we had the record. Oh, this person came on social day. This was the issue. This is what we did. And this is, this, this is. So putting together the story was easy. All I had to do was just to, you know, go in. And what we did was that you won't know who we are talking about. The name, the location, and the story is totally different. And of course, we had to write it in a fictional way that it was structured. But it has, those stories are real, like real people. These are things that happen to these people. So it's more of a story, stories of survivors of gender-based violence. This is what happened to them. And what I did is that at the end of each chapter, I put recommendations and strategies because I've worked in this space. This is what we should do in this situation mm -hmm. so that anybody reading it in that situation will know what to do. Mm -hmm. And then it's call for action. Yep. Everybody is a community police, especially in Africa where we are from. Like I always talk about our community. In your community, if you see a vibrant girl that is happy, that is always doing well, and started behaving funny, the first thing you should do is to call her and ask what happened or take her to 
you know, an organization like ours that can detect what happened. Because one of the things that gender-based violence does is withdrawal. Anybody that is out there doing will withdraw. Mm -hmm. So I decided to write that 10 chapters, writing recommendations and call for action from everybody. The community have a role to play, individuals, the governments also have a role to play in gender-based violence. So it was a good um, process for me. I write the chapters, I send it to them, they edit, they send it. It was totally free, yeah. free of charge. Wow. Yeah, wow. it was totally wow. free of charge. And I just published it on Amazon. Okay. So I'm, I'm so happy about what you are really doing. You see, when you are on the right path, the right people will come to you. They will come your way and they will help as much as that means, you know, you have a lot ahead of you. <laughs> you have a lot of opportunity and a lot to be that you already giving back ahead of you. So what would you, um, so can you talk about the title and the cover of the book? What influenced the title of the book Emerge and the portrait of an African woman as a cover? Yeah, so um, the meaning of emerge to me, I felt that as a young girl, I've, I've seen a lot of other young girls that need to emerge from themselves, that need to come out. And that was the reflection that just came into my head that African girls, Nigerian girls, we need to come out and embrace who we are. Yes. And show that we have the strength, we have the intelligence, we have the skills, the knowledge to be whatever we want to be. Mm -hmm. And most especially people that have gone through gender-based violence. Because what gender-based violence does is that it breaks you. Mm -hmm. It totally breaks you. The trauma alone is, I just feel the reflex when somebody I don't know touch me on my shoulder. Mm -hmm. Then just to think about somebody forcefully doing stuff to me that I'm, I'm not consent. Mm -hmm. yes. Exactly. So that's that's just the name of the image. And then the cover. Mm. <laughs> I don't know that cover. I know I was working with a graphics designer in Nigeria. I, I reached out to, because I was already here by the time I was doing the design, I reached out to a couple of people here. What they were giving me, it was not giving me the vibe of what I want. <laughs> because I want to showcase what we are made of in Africa, one that elegance, like you said, Yoruba mm -hmm. women are elegant. We are mm -hmm. beautiful from inside. We carry something. And then I, the first designs he sent to me, he, he sent to me something that a woman was carrying orange on her head. I was like, Whoa. did you hear what emerge means? <laughs> emerge is somebody, and then you bring orange. So that is the yeah. stereotype. Yes. What yes. we are seeing as the people mm -hmm. that carry orange mm -hmm. on our head. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we went back and forth. And I really wanted something colorful, but, you yeah. know. Yeah. This just gives me that elegance. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. Yeah, I think it's beautiful, you know, because I was looking at it, wow, this is really beautiful. I have the copy anyway. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> a lot of people have reached out to me. I was like, wow, the cover of this book, I like it. <laughs> so when I pick up a non-fiction book, uh, like Emerge, the question on my mind to, uh, to uh, that comes to my mind is what perspective the author is trying to challenge with this book. And um, what would you like the reader to take away from the book? Yeah. So my own perspective, like I said, is an educated tool. Mm -hmm. 
sexual education is something that no matter where you are in the world, it's not well taught. Mm -hmm. Nobody gives you that sexual. And even if they give you sexual education, they give you the good parts. Mm -hmm. Nobody brings out the, the awful and the bad parts to show you. And the only way that it can be shown is reality. Yes. Because fictional stories are fictional. Like, like this is real. This is, this person has actually experienced this. Mm -hmm. And like I said, as an educator too, you wouldn't wait. Once you read this book, you wouldn't wait for one of these things to happen to you before you realize that, oh, this is what is happening to you. Mm -hmm. I've had people reach out to me that I've been passing through emotional abuse all my life. I never knew. After reading this book, after wow. reading Ella's Ella's story, because Ella Ella was you know she she was pregnant and the the husband lost her job, and he was blaming her for losing her job because she got pregnant. Because in their culture, it always comes back to culture. Mm -hmm. In their culture, when a woman is pregnant, is bad luck to the man. <laughs> so it's 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 complicated. Which area is that? I think Edo State or something like that. Yeah. So the truth is that I am more just education, awareness. Let's get this thing out there. Let people be aware. Let them know. And that is it. Um, in a few months, I'm organizing a conference in partnership with my school and United Nations Association because I'm one of the ambassadors for United Nations Association in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And what I want to do is let's just get the awareness out there. When it comes to global policies, because it's the policy on the global level that will trickle down to us. Yes. Let's get the awareness. I want to get you know schools involved, professors involved, researchers involved. What are these policies? How? Yes, we have paper. How can we implement? Yeah, that, that is very important. Even in America here, if you go to uh, uh, domestic violence, um, uh, it's, 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 uh, a domestic violence area, maybe maybe in Chicago, in the city mm -hmm. of Chicago or New York, Department yeah. of Domestic Violence, and you go through the family court where they come into file mm -hmm. case or the criminal court where they call the police on their husband for beating them. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, sometimes, you know, after getting to the court, the woman may actually change her, her story around. Exactly and said, you know, he actually wasn't beating me, you know, everything is fine right now. I want to go back to mm -hmm. my husband, you know, because of, uh, there's so much emotional attached. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? And also, stigma too. Stigma, the, 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 you know, the children also, exactly. you know, having their father around, but, you know, you're raising children in an environment that they are witnessing domestic violence regularly. It has an impact on the growth of those children, both emotional and physical impact on them. So it's something to actually, the education has to really come through mm -hmm. to let people know what gender violence, domestic violence is all about. And we have to eradicate. Would like you like to I always call to action with the book. Everybody has a role to play, mm -hmm. just like you today. Giving me this platform to speak, you are playing your role as an advocate to end gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. Sharing a flyer on the street about hotline to call is a role. So the truth is that everybody needs to involve in the end of gender-based violence. So would you like to share one or two stories from the book? 
Oh, yeah. So like I just shared about, um, I've forgotten her name because there are a lot of names in that book. I think Ella. Yes, I remember now. Ella. Ella was, um, she had a son and she was pregnant and her husband lost her job. And, you know, it just kept building. When he comes, it's that he's angry or he drinks and he comes back to the house drunk. And, you know, they started having a series of back and forth arguments and the house became very uncomfortable for them. And obviously on occasions you say, you had the one that put me in this situation just because she was pregnant. And that day he came back home and you know they had that confrontation and she, she was, I've forgotten what she was trying to do, the details are in the book. And then he started to beat her in her pregnant state and the son was there. So you can see that in Ella's case, she didn't go through only physical abuse. She had gone through emotional abuse and the son too is going through emotional abuse and trauma. Trauma, seeing that. Seeing that. And she reached out to us. I went to the hospital and on the bed where I was speaking to Ella and you know, getting details from her, she was blaming herself. <sighs> Madam Titi is my fault, is my fault. So that is what gender-based violence does to you. It's a circle. You blame yourself for it. So that's one of the emotional abuse, stroke physical abuse story I had. And at the end of the chapter, for people that would like to read the book, it has, you know, some strategies we use to get Ella back on her feet and to make her, first of all, trauma, making sure she gets out of that trauma. Second of all, to understand that it's never your fault. Mm-hmm. It's never your fault because even in Nigeria, I've worked with the police closely. They blame you. Oh, why will you go there? A girl was raped in a bathing saloon yeah. and they were blaming her. Wait till you go find for them. Mm-hmm. She's just a girl. Mm-hmm. She was less than 16 years old. Yeah. And then I also gave the story about my friend. She, she, she should be able to move freely. Exactly. I even forgot what she said. She went maybe to charge her phone. You see what those situations put our girls in? I think she said she went to charge her phone because they just called me and said, um, somebody wants to speak. And I went there. By the time I got there, they had already arrested the boy to the police station. So what I had to do was to talk to the girl and talk to the boy. And when I was talking to the girl, she, I think she went to charge her phone or something because there was no light. And all of a sudden, the boy just, you know, closed the door and started to touch her. And guess what the boy said? He's, he's relatively young, maybe in the tree. Yeah, but I did not do anything. I did not put my this, this thing inside her. And I just used my hand to, to touch her. So for him... His hand. Exactly. So he, he was seen as being violating yeah, her sexually exactly. because of the normalization exactly. of sexual abuse within the society, society mm-hmm. whereby they don't consider that to be a violent against you know women. So some other stories in the book are also sex for grades in educational system all over the world. Mm-hmm. We also have women and girls that have been harassed for sex for grades. There are a couple of stories there around Africa. It's not even a Nigerian story. You know, so different forms of um, gender-based violence. There are 10 chapters, 10 different stories. The introduction part is my own story. <laughs> And uh, yeah, very interesting book. Yeah, One other thing I would like us to also highlight that I think flashed me recently is how to engage boys and men in the conversation. Yeah. So I, I, I always tell people in our spaces that 
The women and the girls are the one being abused. The women and the girls are the one doing advocacy. The women and the girls are the one doing When we do conference, we gather ourselves, talk, talk, talk. Mm -hmm. The people that are perpetrating this abuse, where do they come in? That's why, number one, I'm going to traditional institutions as my research. Number two, how do we engage men and boys? We are mothers. How am I raising my son mm -hmm. to be able to see his sister has his equal, mm -hmm. to be able to see other girls and, and protect them, not molest them? Mm -hmm. So we, the women, you know, it's, it's pointing back at us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the men in the society, are you people standing against these cultures? Because I've I've had interviews with um, I'm sure J J um my friend that introduced me to you, she's yeah. doing fem female genital mutilation work. And you ask the men, oh, I don't care whether the woman is um circumcised or not. What are you saying about it in your community? Yeah. Are you telling your father that is insisting that your sister to get circumcised? Are you telling them no, no, no? Yeah. So men voices have to be invited in this process. If not, we won't get anywhere. We won't get anywhere. And that, that is so powerful. That is very, very important. Even in the United States here, they also recognize it that you have to involve everybody, mm -hmm. men, women, into understanding violence against women is bad. Mm -hmm. That, you know, things have to change. And also that comes from the society recognizing that women also need uh, economic empowerment in order for them to be on their own and say, I don't need to depend on this man. Financially, emotionally, I am empowered enough to be able to handle everything. And we have to normalize the conversation, the action of any woman who wants to work out of a relationship or a marriage, mm -hmm. that is fine. We have to normalize it, exactly. that not everybody is supposed to be married. Not everybody is supposed to, you know. So a lot of all those things has to take place. Like you've been saying, the government also have to put their own effort in, okay? In understanding that there has to be law that has to be carried out. Perfect. And they have to follow that rules or um, law of the society that if you, you know, uh, uh, violate a woman sexually, of uh, or physically or you know any other way the laws have to be very strong, strong. Like have this to is the the laws strong. you know because that's what is actually <laughs> working in united states mm -hmm. in america yeah. here you can't just have children like they have a bunch of children in nigeria one man we impregnate uh, 10 women and have multiple children. Come and have them in America. You won't have your paycheck mm -hmm. because there will be child support. They will take all the money before it gets to you. you the change is what you will get. So yeah. how do you, when you understand that you being held responsible mm -hmm. as a parent, as a father, to care for your own children, a lot of things will change in the society. Sure. You know? So, and we have to teach men to be emotionally connected mm -hmm. A man has to start showing emotion because in Nigeria, men don't cry. Men don't cry. <laughs> Even in Africa in general, you know, they will say, oh, you know, uh, be like a man. Mm -hmm. Don't cry like a woman. So mm -hmm. you have to hold on to yourself, hold on to your emotion, don't express it. We are, we are raising, we should stop raising men who do not express emotion. 
because if they don't express emotion, it comes out in another way, form, in, yeah. a, in another form, in a violent, mm. you know, form. And mm. then that's what we are seeing today. Whether you're talking about the politicians in the position of power, yeah. who feels like you know is one of is like a god whereby everybody has to worship, or you see a professor or a husband. You know, so a lot of all this conversation has to take place, you know. So thank you so much for this. Yeah, just to add to the empowerment bits, I, I like to be harsh to us women. Mm -hmm. Nobody will hand empowerment to you if you don't collect it. Yes. They won't call you on the table if you don't bring your side chair. Mm -hmm. So we have work to do yes. as women. So for mm -hmm. empowerment, they won't hand it over to us. We have to get it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So like I say, put in that extra effort as a woman mm -hmm. and you definitely achieve what you want to achieve. And we women, we have to start supporting one another. Yeah. You know, we have to start supporting one another. And that is very, very important. And because I don't see too much of that support yeah, sure. among African women. You know, so it's something that we need to. It will take another conversation if I start. <laughs> yes, it will but, take another. So, what other projects are you working on now? Okay, so apart from my PhD, I'm doing a research. Another inspiration from the cover of that book is how do we wear our own clothes from Africa? Hmm. I feel that's part of my identity. Mm -hmm. If you go through my pictures, any conversation I'm having, anywhere I'm going around the world, I'm presenting at you know conferences, I'm speaking at different places, I wear my Ankara. Mm -hmm. I wear it to show this is my this is who I am. This is Africa. Yes. So one of the things I want to do is I want to create in, initially I wanted to say, okay, I'll get some people to make some African clothes here. Because when I wear it, everybody loves it. People ask me, oh, I love this clothes. Where can I get it? And all that. So I wanted to like get tailors. I just felt the logistics would be too much. So when you say women empowering men, I want to create a, an online platform where people that design these clothes from wherever they are, especially in Nigeria, Africa, Ghana can bring it to that platform and everybody around the world can buy from them, ship it, but it will be a platform for women. And apart from selling that, we will have other things like helpline, counseling for women, different services that they give and all that. So that's the platform I'm thinking of. It's still in the implementation stage. Oh, you, you I don't know where you get all this energy from. <laughs> <laughs> You are very passionate about what you're doing. Yeah, and imagine this thing you're wearing. I love, I love it. So imagine <laughs> somebody is sending it and is online. Anybody? Yes. I yes. have my American friends, especially yes. Black American. They want to identify with us now mm -hmm. because they are from Africa. Yes. Yes. And they want all this stuff. Well, so we, we have to connect. Even for me, uh, you know, in Nigeria they say you dress down on Friday. For me, going to work on Friday is to dress up. Exactly. Uh, I dress up in my African attire. I don't dress yeah, it. That's I dress it up. Everybody <laughs> here, like I don't even care. I just wear my Ankara anywhere I go, and people know it as my identity now. Yes, yes. So thank yeah. you so much. So how can a listener get this book, and how can they connect with you? Maybe online, whether through social media or other ways of connection. Yeah. So um, my the book is on Amazon. It's only on Amazon for now. Mm 
I wanted to like produce some copies in Nigeria, but all the copies I produced in Nigeria, I, I had projects which I gave it out, especially to secondary school girls. Yeah, and so that project is still ongoing. Anybody that feels that, oh, I want to send 20 copies of this book to, you know, certain amount of school or whatever com community we have that, but we're not sending it individually in Nigeria because of cost of production. So it's now on Amazon. You can order it anywhere you are, the UK, France, but in Nigeria, no. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out how I can get you know somebody to do what Amazon is doing for me in Nigeria so that I don't have, it's a non-profit. <laughs> I'm not making money from it. I'm just trying to yeah. you know create awareness around it. And then the long-term project for this book is I want to translate it into the three major languages in Nigeria, Hausa, Ibu, Yoruba. Because like we said, if we're getting awareness to the grassroots, like the people in the grassroots be able to read you know, these books too. So I'm definitely open to collaborations and partnership for anybody that is interested in any of these projects I've mentioned. And then to contact me, my name is Titilaya Ugubavi, anywhere, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. The only one on LinkedIn is I still have my media name there. It's Titilayo Mirayibu Ogubambi. But every other place is Titilayo Ogubambi. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation. I could keep you here all day. Yeah, I know. The conversation <laughs> was so interesting. Yeah. So, uh, in closing, participants are continue to normalize conversation about the importance of community engagement, about African immigrant experiences in America and in the diaspora. As I always say, as we publicly continue to discuss difficult issues, we're shredding away stigma associated with uncomfortable di dialogue. Thank you so much, Titi Layo Gumbambi, for coming to Pansa Pansa podcast to educate our community in the diaspora about gender-based violence and for sharing your wisdom with our community. I also want to thank you for the selfless work you're doing globally to bring awareness to gender violence. I really thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me. I'll definitely be in touch. Yes, yes. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ponza Ponza Live Podcast. We hope to have you back with us in the next episode as we continue to explore the nuances of the African immigrant experience. If you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at talk at ponzaponza.org. That is T-A-L-K at P-A-N-S-A, P-A-N-S-A dot org. And follow us on Instagram at ponza.ponzaforum. Until next time, remember to spread kindness and love. Thank you and take care of yourself.